And so if you would, uh, follow along with me there as we read, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us and how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The the story of the Bible, or what we might call the grand narrative of Scripture, is a story of creation, fall, redemption, And restoration. And this is very much the story that is unfolding before us here in this first book of the Bible in Genesis, where we see creation and fall. And right away, we are told of a promise of redemption and restoration that is to come by the seed of the woman. And this story of the Bible hinges on the covenants, the promises that God makes with his people. And this is most certainly true of the story of Abraham, where everything that we have considered rests in the promise that God makes to Abraham in chapter 12, that a great nation will come from him that will bless the nations. There is a seed, a child that will come from Abraham that will bless the nations. And as we've walked through the story of Abraham, beginning in chapter 12, all the way here to chapter 20, we see several threats along the way to the covenant. 
And here, again, right before we come to the birth of Isaac in chapter 21 that we'll look at next week, we see a very similar event. In fact, it's the, the very much the event that happened at the beginning of the story of Abraham in chapter 12. Again, Abraham finds himself on a journey and he decides it is best to pass off his wife as his sister. Instead of trusting God's provision, he takes things into his own hands again. And here, once more, in Genesis 20, we are reminded of this. The will of God is not frustrated by the schemes of men. I want us to consider just for a moment the two similar stories. If you have been following with us in the, in the uh, series of Genesis, or if you are just a student of the word, you know in chapter 12, there at the beginning of the story, Abraham finds himself in Egypt, and he, he, he tells the people there that his wife Sarah is his sister, and we see a similar event there. And although there are a lot of similarities between the story, there are also some differences that will help us understand what we see here in chapter 20. So just for a moment, I want us to consider these two stories. There in chapter 12 in Egypt, we're told why Abraham sojourned to Egypt. If you remember, it was because there was a famine in the land. Here in chapter 20, we're not given those details. We're just simply told that he journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and he lived between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. We're not told why, we just know that he went on this journey. Uh, in chapter 12, we see him interacting with Sarah at the very beginning of the story, telling her why he wants her to tell people that she is his sister, because he's afraid for his own life. Uh, we're not given those details here in chapter 20. In fact, it just says in, in verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And those four words alone in verse 2 are kind of confusing apart from the context of chapter 12 where we're told there why Abraham does this. Uh, there in chapter 12, Sarah is taken by the king of Egypt, taken by Pharaoh, and we're told it's because she's beautiful and the people of his kingdom wanted, her, uh, wanted him to take her in. But here, all we're told uh, at the end of verse 2 is that the king of Gerar, Abimelech, took Sarah. We're not given those details of why. We just know that he, he did. Uh, in chapter 12, Pharaoh comes to know eventually in the story, that Sarah is in fact Abraham's wife. But that's not until after uh, he has interacted with, with Abraham and Sarah. But here we see this unique interaction between Abimelech and God, where God comes to this foreign king, this Philistine king in Abimelech, and he has this dialogue with him in this dream in the night. All we know about Pharaoh is that he came to know about it. We're not given those details, but here... Much of the story of chapter 20 is taken up with this interaction between God and this Philistine king. Uh, in chapter 12, there's a plague that keeps Pharaoh from defiling Sarah, but here it's because of the closed wombs of the, the females there in Abimelech's home. Uh, in chapter 12 and chapter 20, we see a rebuke from both the kings. Pharaoh rebukes Abraham. Here, Abimelech does the same. Uh, in chapter 12, we see Pharaoh blessing Abraham, but the blessing that he gives to him, the, 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 the portion of his herd and these other things that he gives in there in chapter 12, comes before Pharaoh finds out that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. It's more of a dowry. But here in chapter 20, Abimelech gives the sheep and the oxen and the male servants and the female servants and the silver to Abraham after all of the events unfold. 
after he rebukes Abraham. In chapter 12, there's no word of the relief for the plague in Pharaoh's house. But here, very significantly, we see the prophet Abraham praying on behalf of the house of Abimelech. And the Lord brings relief to the problem that has manifested itself there in his home. Whereas chapter 12 is more about Sarah and Abraham, here chapter 20 is, is very much about Abimelech. Most of the story is about Abimelech and what he is doing, because Abimelech is a very important character here in the story. He is presented to us as the one who fears God. So with that background and that comparison between the two stories, I want us to spend the rest of our time doing this. I want us to consider three characters that we find here in Genesis 20. I want us to consider an innocent king who repents, a reluctant prophet who prays, and a sovereign God who provides. When we come to stories in the Bible or narrative in the Bible, it is our goal to understand the story well, to pull out the theology from the story, and then apply it appropriately to our lives. And so in an attempt to do that this morning, as we should do every time we come to the Word of God, I want us to do that through the lens of these three characters. So first, let us consider this innocent king who repents, namely Abimelech. With Abimelech, we right away see that God reveals himself to the nations. It is shocking for the reader coming out of Genesis 19 and the, the incident there with Sodom where we couldn't even find 10 righteous people inside the walls of Sodom to find that in the land of Canaan, there is not only a king, but a people who fear God. There are inhabitants in the land who fear God. This foreign king, this Philistine king, we come to see, fears God. And we contrast the fear of Abimelech, this positive fear, to the fear of Abraham that we see in verse 11. In verse 11, Abraham said to Abimelech, he said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God in this place. And so he doubts that there is a fear of God in the place of Gerar. But then notice what he's doing. He says, and they will kill me because of my wife. Ironically, Abraham is the one who is living in the fear of man, and Abimelech, this foreign king, is the one who's operating out of a fear of God. And his interaction with Abraham, this prophet of God, brings about his blessing. So there in Genesis 12, where it says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, here we see one who blesses Abraham and receives a blessing from God in return. And this is not the first time in the story of Genesis where we see God revealing himself to a foreigner. We saw this with Hagar. And this is not the last time in the Old Testament where we see God revealing himself to people from the nations. We are reminded here again in Genesis that the covenant has in view every tribe and tongue. That the gospel is for every tribe and tongue is not just a New Testament idea. This is a truth that runs throughout the pages of Scripture. God reveals himself to this Philistine, but notice how he responds. This Philistine king responds appropriately to God's correction. In Abimelech, we see his fear of God first in his appeal to God's justice. Uh, you see there in verse 4, Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? This sounds very familiar to what we just read a couple chapters ago in chapter 18 where 
Abraham said to God, what? Will you kill the righteous with the wicked? But we also see his fear of God in his response to the correction that God gives him. Notice the Lord tells him there that you have done this wicked thing. You're a dead man. Notice how Abimelech responds in verse 8. It says he rose early in the morning. He responds swiftly to the correction of God. But he also responds positively to the correction of God and the fact that he gives Sarah back to Abraham, but he also blesses Abraham with this great wealth. This is what true repentance looks like. When the Spirit of God and the Word of God convict us of sin and we are called to repent, it is not something that we are to wait to do tomorrow. Repentance isn't to, for us to wait to do next year when we get our things in order. It is something that God is calling us to do today in these very moments. And it's not just something that we give lip service to God and say, Lord, I repent of my sin. There are actions that reflect that there is true repentance in our lives. We see that here in Abimelech. Swift repentance, coming with change, this appropriate response to the correction of God. But finally, in Abimelech, we come to see something that we have already considered here in the pages of Genesis, and that is that the innocent will find life and the guilty will find death. If you think that this truth is something that we left behind at Sodom and Gomorrah, you are most certainly wrong because we see a theme of life and death here in these first seven verses of Genesis chapter 20. Notice what God says to him in the dream right away there in verse 3. Behold, you are a dead man. That is not the type of dream you want to have in the middle of the night where the first words are, you are a dead man. And he tells to him, he says, if you don't return his wife there at the end in verse 7, if you do not return her, know that you will surely die. There are consequences of death for his guilt. But notice right before that in verse 7, he says, if you do return this man's wife, you shall die live. If he doesn't return Sarah, he will die. But if he does, he will live. And all of this hinges on the word innocent. Abimelech is innocent in the situation. Why? Because he didn't know that he had taken this man's wife into his home. And so he says there in verse 5, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. They're both in on this. He says there, in the integrity of my heart and the innocent of, innocence of my hands, I have done this. He is innocent because he didn't know. But notice that God still calls him to repentance because although he is innocent, he is still guilty of sin. We come to understand about sins of ignorance really well in the book of Leviticus where God lays out his law for his people and he tells them what to do when they sin unintentionally. And so it's not just our presumptuous sins or the sins that we do intentionally that cause our guilt, but it's also those hidden faults that we're not aware of that need forgiveness as well. And so in Psalm chapter 19, verses 12 and 13, the writer there famously says this, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Even our unintentional sins cause our guilt before a holy God. And so although Abimelech's claim of innocence is right, 
he is still guilty and there is a debt that must be paid for his guilt. Dear friend, if you are here today and you have never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to forgive you of your sins and you've never repented and turned from your sins and followed after Jesus, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and you will be saved. You are guilty, dear friend, before a holy and righteous judge. And although you might not be an axe murderer, and although you might have never committed adultery, and although you've never been a part of a Ponzi scheme, you have broken God's law at every single point. This is essential when we come to understand the gospel, that we are sinners in need of someone to come and intervene on our behalf. And that is what Jesus has done at the cross, paying the debt for our sin at the cross. Repent and believe in Jesus today. You are guilty before him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took your guilt on the cross in your place. But there's another point of application here for us, for those of us who are in Christ today and are in covenant community together in this local church today from Abimelech's life. And that is when you wrong someone You need to go to them and correct it. Whether your wrong was unintentional or intentional, seek restoration with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is hard to believe that in a room with this many people that there's not hurt that exists in this place this morning between brother and sister in Christ. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next year. Don't wait till they come to you to seek restoration. Go to them this morning in this place and seek restoration. In light of who Christ is and what he has done on your behalf, may we look to correct our wrongs, whether they were unintentional or not, to the glory of God. So we see first this innocent king who repents, but the second character I want us to notice is a reluctant prophet who prays, the prophet Abraham. What do we see here in the life of Abraham? Well, probably the most glaring thing that we see right away in the story is that we are prone to return to the same sin over and over. It is hard to believe here in chapter 20 that Abraham would make the same mistake again. And notice the very beginning of the story of Abraham there in chapter 12 begins with him making this very mistake there in Egypt. Saying this this woman who is my wife is actually my sister. She gets taken by the king. And right here, right on the cusp of Isaac's birth, catch that. Chapter 21 verses 1 through 7, what we're going to look at next week is finally when Isaac is born. Right before we get there, once again, Abram makes the same mistake that he did at the beginning of the story. He is years older. He is far more experienced with God's providential care over his life. God has given him great wealth. God has delivered him from famine and has delivered him from sword. God has been abundantly faithful to Abraham, and yet we find him afraid for his life. Instead of trusting in God's power to preserve him, he is operating out of fear. This great hero of the faith is less than perfect. He is a fearful man. I can relate to this. I know that you can relate to this as well, that we are all prone to go back to those sins that so easily entangle us. And the call of the text this morning is to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't live in fear, dear friend. Look to Jesus. Trust in his promises. 
But in Abraham, we also see that God blesses the nations through him despite his shortcomings. Here is Abraham, this prophet of God, this prophetic intercessor on behalf of the nations. In chapter 18, he prays on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And here in chapter 20, verse 7, we're, we're finally introduced to him as the prophet. It says, now then return the man's wife for he is a prophet. We talked about this back in, I believe it's chapter 15, where God comes to Abraham and tells him that your descendants will be in bondage in Egypt and then I will deliver them. And we talked about this verse and how Abraham is a prophet of God. But like the prophet Jonah, who was known as the reluctant prophet, we see here too, Abraham is also a reluctant prophet. He's reluctant to trust fully in the Lord to deliver him. And so this isn't an attempt from the author to alter any type of character trait that's been presented to Abraham in chapter 19 and 18. All of the positives that we see in Abraham are true. The writer here is simply working out the narrative of the promise before us. And what do we find? God uses dysfunctional people for his purposes. This is good news for us today, myself included, because we are all dysfunctional people. God uses dysfunctional people who are a part of his covenant family for his kingdom. God in his sovereignty could have chosen any way to build his church and to spread his gospel in this world. But his word has taught us this, that he has chosen people like you and I who are broken and dead in our sins, but have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb as we just sang about to advance his kingdom in this world. This is profound. That God would use sinners like you and me to make his glory known in San Antonio and to the ends of the earth. And so, dear friend, do not sit by on the sidelines. You are a part of this plan and this purpose to make God's glory known to the ends of the earth. But finally, in Abraham, we see that God's covenant promise will stand. As we just mentioned, we are reminded again on the cusp of Isaac's birth that the birth of Isaac is all of God. Abraham and Sarah's part in the blessing demanded their purity. Once again, reminding us that God values marriage and wants to preserve it according to his standards. And we as a church must affirm God's standard for marriage. But their deception in their marriage, both of them participating in this deception, threatened to jeopardize the blessing, the promise, the son that's about to come in chapter 21. And so when Abimelech says to Abraham there in verses 9 and 10, what have you done to us? You have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that not ought to be done. What did you see that you did this thing? Abimelech, this foreign king, ironically, is the one to point out Abraham's faults. Whereas earlier in the story, Abimelech says, I was innocent and rightfully so. Here, Abraham's response to the rebuke is pretty weak. He presumes his guilt. He has nothing else to say but to say, well, you're right. I did this thing. I did operate out of fear. And yet God interceded to preserve his plan of the son that is to come. To keep Sarah pure while she was in the house of Abimelech and to bring about the promise of Isaac in chapter 21. 
when we think about God's plan for our life and how our sin relates to that, uh, there tend to be two types of uh, Christians that exist on either end of the spectrum. There are those Christians who tend to be debilitated by their sin, and there tend to be Christians on the other end of the spectrum who tend to be apathetic toward their sin. And so there are those who are so afraid of sinning to the point that they think that if they sin one more time that God will chew them up and spit them out and that he will be angry at them and his wrath will be poured out on them. Listen, dear brother or sister in Christ, if you are a Christian today, God's wrath that was being poured out on you has been taken at the cross of Christ once and for all on your behalf. You will not come under the wrath of God. You are his and he will keep you regardless of what you do in this life. And he will use you for his kingdom and for his purposes. But again, the other side of the spectrum is the Christian who's apathetic towards sin. And they see the story of Abraham. It's like, well, if Abraham couldn't get it figured out, then I can just, you know, live however. It's going to keep on sinning so that grace may increase. That's not the message of the story either. No, we are to walk in obedience We are to walk in unison and in step with our master as the sheep, as he leads us and guides us, as we've talked about so many times in Genesis. So how do we find the balance between between being debilitated by sin and apathetic to sin? Very simple, it's this. Right in the middle, trust this truth. God will have his way in your life. If you are in Christ today by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone God will sanctify you that is a promise that is a certainty from scripture he will build you up into who he would have you be for his kingdom trust in that promise and as we just sang about as we learn to trust him in that and trust him in his word the two practical applications of this is very simple trust him and obey him that is it Trust that his promises are true. Trust that what he says in his word that he has done and will do and has promised to do are true and certain. Trust him with your finances. Trust him with your children. Trust him with your career. Trust him with your health. Trust him in seasons of suffering. Trust him in seasons of blessing. And in all seasons of life, may we be found faithful to obeying him. Obey him according to his word. Swim in the word. Feast on the word, dear brother and sister in Christ, because it's here in the pages of Scripture where we find what it means to obey our master. The world will not teach us how to obey God. His word alone does that. And as we understand his word and study his word and are students of the word, his spirit then will convict us as we walk through this life to obey him. Trust him and obey him today. He is faithful and he will have his way in your life. Rest in that. The final and most important character that we see here in, the, in this story here in Genesis chapter 20 is a sovereign God who provides. We see here a sovereign God who provides. Notice first that God preserves his people. Here again, as we've seen so often Throughout the story of Genesis, God intervenes on behalf of his people to keep them and preserve them. Abraham and Sarah, again, journeying in this region of the Negev, and God is the one who is preserving them. 
There's a, a little bit of an interesting foreshadowing, though, happening between the story there in chapter 12 and the story here in chapter 20. In chapter 12, God delivers them out of Egypt back to the promised land, as we'll see will come for the nation of Israel later in its story. But here, where is God preserving them? He's preserving them in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. So not only will he preserve his people while they're in slavery in Egypt and deliver them from Egypt, but we also see the hope that he will preserve them while they are in the land. He is a God who preserves his people. But we also see here in chapter 20 of this sovereign God who provides that he is sovereign over every situation. This is unmistakable in the text. It is quite clear to see this in the text. When we use that word sovereign, that means that God has the right and the wisdom and the power to do all that he pleases. He is the almighty God. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. And any view of God that belittles those truths about him is a false view. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is the almighty creator God of the universe, and he is sovereign over every situation of life. Nothing happens by chance. And look how we see it here in the passage. Look at verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God was the one who kept her from being defamed in the house of Abimelech. Look at verse 13, what Abraham says about God. It says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Abraham goes back to the very beginning of the story where he left the the land of his fathers and came into the promised land. He says, in all of my sojourning, in all of my movement, even when I was camped by the oaks of Mamre, God was the one who brought me there. Notice how the passage ends, though, in verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. It was God who healed him and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. Verse 18, the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. It was the Lord who closed the wombs. It was the Lord who opened the wombs. He is sovereign in all things. And so the skeptic will say, well, that sounds like a God who is a puppet master. You're just a bunch of robots is what you're saying. This is paradoxical. But what we come to find here in chapter 20 and throughout Scripture is that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are not at odds in the economy of God. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are not mutually exclusive. They are joined beautifully In the economy of God. And we see that here in the story. How do we know that to be true? Because God is clearly sovereign in the story, but who is responsible? Every single character in the story. Abimelech is responsible for his sin, even though he is innocent. Abraham and Sarah are responsible for their their, uh, desire to deceive and scheme in this process. Everyone in this story is culpable. Everyone in this story is responsible for their actions, but rest in this. God is sovereign over Genesis chapter 20. The final thing that we see here, though, about God, who is sovereign and provides, is that he alone will bring about his covenant promise. Notice to what great lengths the writer goes to to show us that Sarah was not defiled by Abimelech. This is so important. Because when we get to chapter 21 and Isaac is born, there needs to be no doubt in the original audience's mind that this was of God. It wasn't of Abimelech. 
And so it's, it's beautiful that in the, the flow of the story that God would put this right before chapter 21. Notice to the great links that the writer goes to to show us this was not of Abimelech. Verse 4. Abimelech had not approached her. Verse 6. When God said, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and I, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Verse 16 to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Abimelech himself says this, it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. The son Isaac will come by the impossible. This is a work of God alone. The son doesn't come by Abimelech. And as we've already talked about, he doesn't come by Sarah and Abraham either. They're old. They're beyond childbearing years. The act of Isaac's birth is of God alone. And so one commentator said this, he said, if the promise is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man. Morally, as well as physically, it will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. Another commentator said this, Abraham's deception had provided the occasion for the violation, but Abraham's God alone could restore life to its normal state. God alone is the one who gives life by his grace. We rest in that today. We celebrate that today. I want to just read some verses from Scripture that speak to the sovereignty of God. And I want us to just rest in this truth that God is sovereign. But I also want to read some verses that show that God is good in all that he does for his people. So let's just listen to words God's, uh, the word of God speak for a moment. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Job 36.32, he covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Even the lightning, when it strikes its mark, is doing so at the command of God. Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 33, 10 through 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord will stand forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verses 5 through 7. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I am God, and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. But notice in these few verses here that I'm about to read how God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. At the end of Genesis there in chapter 50 verse 20, when uh, the, the brothers of Joseph are afraid because they did this evil act against their brother by selling him into slavery, Joseph said this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Dear friend, whatever you are facing today, whatever you will face tomorrow, whatever you will face in the coming years, rest in the sovereign hand of this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. His ways are good, and he is good to his people. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things cancer diagnosis, job loss. Whatever you are facing today, it is all according to the sovereign plan of God and it is for your good and for his glory. You might not see that today and you might not find relief from whatever you're facing in this life, but trust in this. If you are in Christ today, you will be kept to the end and your hope is not in earthly things. Your hope is set in heaven with Jesus. Right now, he's reigning supreme as king of kings and lord of lords. If you're driving down the highway, and and before I get to this illustration, I want to say, preface it with this. I understand that not everyone had a great father figure growing up. Not every dad is is a good dad, so I understand that. So just follow the illustration with me, if you will. Show me some grace in this. It's not perfect. But imagine you're driving down the highway, and up in front of you there is a car that is swerving between the lanes and driving erratically. And then it starts to hit other cars and bounce them off the road and knock them off the road. And and you think to yourself, what is this crazy person doing? And that's a really nice way to say what you probably would say. Who is this person? What on earth is happening? This is a crazy man. But as the car slows down and you pull up next to it, you look in the driver's seat and you realize it's your father. And immediately your perception of the situation changes because you know that your dad would not operate in that way unless there was something else happening in the situation. God, as our perfect heavenly good father, has a reason for all that he does. And we will not always understand it or be able to comprehend it in this life, but rest in this today. We can trust that he is good and what he allows for us is for our good and for his glory. His will will not be thwarted by the schemes of man. Trust him. Obey him today. Let's pray.